0: Hello and welcome to another Paprika Podcast episode of In the Pit. We are your hosts, Audrey Tsang-Fisher and Hannah Meyer-Baidoun, we are currently in our second year of our Masters of Architecture. We come to you today on this beautiful morning from the unceded territory of the Mohegan, Mohican, Mashantucket, Pequot, Eastern Pequot, Saatikok, Golden Hill, Pabisset, New Quinnipiac, and other Algonquin-speaking peoples to engage in a conversation about the future of architecture and how it can address violent colonial histories perpetuated by current political, social, and civic environments. Thank you to our guests who have graciously
1: offered their time. We are joined today by Ozer Suluji, associate professor and chair of the Masters of Architecture program at Carleton University in Ottawa. Ray's currently teaching a studio titled, The Cities We Become and Deny, and Jennifer Newsom, principal of Dream the Combine, an assistant professor at the University of Minnesota, who recently gave a lecture here at Yale School of Architecture. While not defined by this geographic connection, it is interesting to note that both Ozair and Jennifer have ties to Minneapolis, Jennifer currently being based there, and Ozair having lived there for 12 years while teaching architecture and landscape architecture at the University of Minnesota. We're really excited to share this space with you and engage in a conversation that will cultivate care and generosity in our communities.
0: With us today are seven individuals, myself and Hannah included. We'll start introductions with our guests, Ozair and Jennifer.
2: Um, hi everyone, I am delighted to be here. My name is Ozair Saluji. I am joining you all today from uh, from Ottawa, from the unceded territory of the Algonquin Anishinaabeg nation. And, uh, and I just want to acknowledge respect and gratitude to all the First Nations, Inuit and Metis people for their contributions uh to stewardship of the land and our community. I teach at Carleton University at the Azraeli School of Architecture and Urbanism in Ottawa, Canada. I spent some time um in Minneapolis as a faculty member where I met Hannah and where I got to know and meet Jennifer. Uh so super, super delighted to be here and to and to join you all in conversation today. I think a wonderful group of people to kind of connect with and to And to talk too about these really important questions for our discipline.
3: Yeah, likewise, I'm really excited to be here in conversation with you today. You know, I think it's interesting that we're unfortunately all separate from one another, but uh, rooted in place. And so I'm here in Minneapolis on the land of Lakota and Dakota and Ojibwe people. And I similarly feel as though. You know, there's so many ways in which we talk about territory and we talk about land and we talk about site and architectural practice and opening up the kind of dialogue around how we think about territory and its many sort of narratives and histories is a really important part of this equation. And so, you know, I really appreciate the, the territorial acknowledgement before we start, even though we're all kind of seeing each other in this Zoom, Zoom interface <laughs> also. But yeah, really delighted to be here. Thank you.
4: Um, my name is Dominic Ot. I'm a second year MArch one student, graduating in 2022, and I'm yeah I'm happy to be here. I'm looking forward to this conversation.
5: My name is Josh Green, and I'm first year MArch
3: one student, um, class of 23, and I think I'm just excited to be in your guys's presence and learn and discuss and engage in some some great dialogue. My
5: name is Magna Medalia. I'm also an MArch one second year. Um, I'm in the same class as Dom, Hannah, and Audrey. And so it was very exciting when they asked me if I could join. And so thank you for having me.
4: Okay, so this is a question for both of you. What sort of sparks your curiosity in architecture, design or research? And do you consider a frame of reference, whether it be a place, object or philosophy or memory?
3: I think my curiosity in architecture stems from a kind of deep and intimate place. I've always been really curious about how people live, how they occupy space, patterns of movement, you know, started from being a very curious kid who would ride her bike around the neighborhood and like kind of peer into people's windows and try to imagine (laughs) how they lived inside. Um, But, you know, I, I think for, for me, I'm really kind of intrigued about architecture's capacity to kind of imagine Imagine things that haven't been made before, yeah. haven't been done before, haven't been seen before, uh, and so i'm I'm very much compelled by the kind of projective capacity of our discipline uh, to imagine new futures. so I think that's something that that really motivates me.
2: Yeah, actually, you know uh, likewise, I think for me, it's really about the potential of the of our discipline to be emancipatory, to kind of through the imagination. I could never be a doctor, I could never be an engineer. As um, you know, as much as my family might have wanted me to be, uh, growing up in South Africa in Johannesburg, I was always I was always sort of struck by the the space where I was, and so like you know, like Jennifer, I think the the kind of deepness for me of of the curiosity in this practice, in this discipline, in this profession, in teaching, is really rooted in the idea of the notion of the imagination as something that is liberational or that can be liberational, that can be emancipatory. And that's like always a frame of reference, I think. You know, just to go back to the question, that is the frame of reference, I think, for all the teaching that I do. I don't practice. I practice only very briefly. And so most of my, uh, you know, most of my life has been in academia. I've been teaching for about, you know, 16 or 17 years now. And so my world is the academic world and it's the design studio and it's, uh, you know, classrooms and now Zoom classrooms. But always, I think that the touchstone has been about the possibility of the imagination to be something that is emancipatory, that is liberational. And that's the frame of reference, I think, for, you know, at least for the way that I try to think about, you know, how I teach and how my scholarship might be framed. I don't know if it's the same, Jennifer, for you in terms of practice, you know, the work that you and Tom do, I think. Is it a similar condition there because you're like both teacher and you know practitioner you sort of have your foot in both worlds
3: yeah and I think my path is in some ways sort of the opposite of yours right like yeah. I was practicing for a long time and maybe are more new to uh, academia this is my fourth year um, mm. at University of Minnesota and but I but I think when you talk about the kind of uh, emancipatory capacity of architecture, I think that can still be that doesn 't have to remain in this kind of lofty theoretical yeah. place right that it can actually yeah. kind of root itself in the built yep. form and the kind of material expression how you organize a space because our you know our social relationships happen in place they happen somewhere, so yeah. how can we you know think about architecture's capacity for welcome mm-hmm. its capacity for for generosity? I like how you framed this conversation as being yeah. one of, of care and generosity, you know, can we make an architecture that's like that? Yeah. Can yeah. we talk about expanded notions of belonging mm-hmm. and actually mm-hmm. make that evident in the built form? And I think that, you know, that kind of turn of thinking about these built constructions not from a position of a kind of singular or hegemonic like privileged view but really thinking about the kind of multiplicity of of publics that our work is going to engage with yeah Uh, i think that's definitely a kind of ethos that is embedded in our practice and in our work
2: yeah that's a you know like that's a, a to me that's a really really significant point i think that kind of challenging the kind of saviorism or the perceived sort of historical saviorism of architecture or, you know, the design disciplines, I think. And I would just add, I think like the co-production of knowledge, I think is being absolutely essential into, into, you know, like any, you know, element of this discourse. I think that that's like hugely, hugely important and significant. I'm sorry. I don't mean to like turn this into an Osaire kind of chatting <laughs> with Jennifer no, session, no, I... uh, but, uh, it's always nice to have, you know, like to have her here, and so, uh, lovely
3: we can just we can just riff and talk to each other. <laughs>
2: yeah, I just it's I don't possible. want it to be like we ignore the rest of you just I, I start talking for like an hour.
3: We want to hear the hear the questions. I want to hear what you, you did have to say, say? Something really compelling that I want.
2: <laughs>
3: but yeah, let's let's pause. Yeah, absolutely. Questions.
2: Okay. <laughs>
0: questions that we had for you guys is do you think of your work as as world building does narrative play a role in that world building and and who do you really imagine that narrative
2: for Mm -hmm. like super quick yeah absolutely i think that to to imagine is to kind of is to be projective and is to is to see forward as well as kind of looking back you know, backwards in a, in a compassionate way. I think um, there was a, you know, there was a relatively recent article by Andrea Bagnato in Eflux, you know, where he wrote about staying at home. And I think one of the things he said in there with respect to COVID was how it's disrupted the geographies of care, how it's like profoundly disrupted geographies of care. And so, um, I mean, I think, uh, yeah, absolutely. That's uh, just a really important part of how I hope to see world building and how I hope we can communicate it to students through the work that they do, that world building is an attempt to kind of to build, to establish, to strengthen these geographies of care, to kind of to establish um, um, infrastructures of generosity, um, You know, infrastructures of kindness, um, infrastructures of empathy and infrastructures of plurality, I think really important that it is a collaborative effort. Uh, You know, again, sort of just going back to my previous quick statement about really rejecting the notion of, uh, you know, saviorism in order to do that, that necessitates community. And when communities kind of look together to their futures and what it is that they want and what it is that they want to see and be and and inhabit and be in, I think that's uh, the notion of world building is in a way a kind of total counter to engaging with established structures or hegemonies, um, you know, as Jennifer said earlier, how do you imagine something better and how do you kind of move to something better? For sure, uh, it's a really important part. You know, I think writing, you know, drawing, designing, is always aspirational. And so looking for something that is, um, you know, that reaches, uh, you know, generously forward, I think is absolutely important. And world building is a huge part of that. Telling stories is a huge part of that. Telling your own stories is a huge part of that, where your own stories and narratives and histories are not professionalized by others, uh, who perhaps don't have grounding or access or engagement with the worlds that they purport to represent. I think that's a really significant part of you know kind of some of the other items I think you all wanted to get to regarding plurality and diversity in the profession and discipline and teaching, but. Yeah, absolutely. How do we tell our own stories? How do we write our own myths? How do we you know, create our own uh, narratives and our own histories? And we do that, I think, through telling stories that we own and that we inhabit.
3: I appreciate that you bring up the idea of a kind of origin story or an origin mm-hmm. myth, right? Mm-hmm. Because so much of architecture is about reifying a certain kind of lineage absolutely. that comes out of an Enlightenment project. Yeah and those notions of humanism excluded certain <laughs> types of bodies and and validated actually a very narrow sort of band of knowledge. So yeah. I think when we talk about world building, it's funny because I would never apply that term to myself <laughs> because it feels too it feels too like authoritarian or something like that, right? Um But I think if it's approached with a kind of ethos of, it it, it matters the intention. So if you approach the kind of world building from a position of co-authorship, right? That you're, and I think that that happens in the context of academia, right? The kind of Mm co-production of knowledge that Ozair was Mm -hmm. talking about, but also in the kind of built architectural project that there's a certain validation of audience, right? And that there is a kind of notion of co-authorship and an expanded view actually of like who is expert. In yeah. the context of like developing yeah. work, so I think about I don't know if I would necessarily use the title world building, but maybe that's like my Midwest humility, <laughs> humility or something. But I think it, it's it is about projecting forward, expanded narratives that are but at the same time acknowledging that like every narrative is going to be fragmentary right that like we can only operate from our own perspective Mm -hmm. and there's a certain amount of not necessarily flattening but a kind of just recognition that everyone has a point of view that the lens through which we've traditionally viewed architecture is also a point Mm -hmm. of view Mm -hmm. and it's one of many yeah. Right. So, how does the kind of world building project speak to that multiplicity? Yeah. I think is is the important aim because people have been world building all over the place for a select few <laughs> people. It's not and good so, world building. <laughs> yeah. So it's like how do we how do we do it in a new way, in a more inclusive way, yeah. in a more expansive way? Um, so it's a kind of conditioning of the term, perhaps. Yes, yeah, absolutely. touch on this idea of narrative and like starting from this purely curious state of what is design and what is architecture and I'm curious how you like bring that narrative into the studio and if you bring other voices or other people or other works that you kind of pull from in regards to creating this diversity of of perspectives and and Mm. in terms of guiding students like how does that play out in the studio that's a really good question I think something that Tom and I talk a lot about in our practice, and I think also informs the way I think about teaching is operating from a kind of in a metaphoric way rather than a symbolic one that kind of Mm -hmm. optimizes to particular meanings, but that the metaphor actually has a capacity to not only hold things that might be in conflict with one another, but that there's a kind of openness of interpretation. Mm -hmm. And I think in the studio context it also ties into a kind of open acknowledgement of the subjective position from which we all like view what we're doing, Mm -hmm. that we all enter into what we're doing Mm -hmm. and um, that we might all, we might be kind of approaching the, the content of the studio from wildly divergent positions. And we bring those histories with us into the studio context. Yeah. You know, I think a lot of, Certainly, my education was about like leaving those histories at the door and then becoming mm-hmm. like kind of indoctrinated <laughs> to mm-hmm. a certain way of thinking. Mm-hmm. But I think I try in my studio courses to really ask people to kind of probe deeply and investigate the even intuitive or highly subjective
2: notions that they might be bringing to this process. I, um, I really love the... The emphasis on, on kind of local subjectivities, I think being an essential part of, of doing architecture uh, or of making design work. Um, I think a recent studio that I taught on the mining landscapes of South Africa, actually, um, you know, in Johannesburg, we started with a kind of empirical map project, and then we shifted to, I think, what, what um, um, like what I call the tool atlas, which I asked students to kind of think through the, the associated ecologies of all of the like the physical and also the non-physical aspects of tools that you know that affect the built environment in this case you know the you know the extraction landscapes of uh, of johannesburg's um you know gold reef and so on and what was really interesting about that was we started to to kind of shift away from sort of physical things uh, and started really to look at I hate to use the word but multiple epistemologies and multiple ontologies i think in in thinking about what and how you might engage with a particular space and condition and i think all of that was really important to make sure that the grounding for the studio or the question and i think josh that it's it relates i think to you know to any studio but that the content and the framing of the studio was defined by the local and so We looked at South African photographers, we looked at South African artists, we looked at South African writers um, in order to help us kind of situate at least a point of engagement for that work. And so it wasn't the usual suspects in terms of, you know, talking about landscape or about landscape ideas. Instead, we looked at the photography of Santu Mofokeng or the the you know the artwork and the artistic practice of William Kentridge or you know the writings of Zoe Wickham and others as a way to kind of say you know there's a very specific history context locality to this place and i hope actually with the next offering of the studio to work with some colleagues at the GSA so that this idea of local subjectivities actually frames the first project i just want to go back to what jennifer said because i think that's a really really important point the the kind of Building the plurality of the canon, I think is is like is so essential. It's so essential to do that. You know, Eve Tuck and uh, you know K. Wayne Wang say that decolonization is not a metaphor. You know, it's about it's about seeding back. It's about giving back physically. Uh, you know, reparations, land, and so on. And I think that how do we kind of allow students to give back to the dialogue that we're asking them to kind of engage with uh, to the world that we're asking them to be a part of. And I think that the notion of just recognizing that we have particular points of view and particular histories and codes that we bring to our own work and embracing them as a part of the process instead of trying to kind of set up a kind of a superstructure that denies that, I think is a great way to engage students so that we can co-produce knowledge, so that we can craft spaces of learning and engagement that allow them to ask these sorts of questions and to kind of tell their own stories. I think that's a hugely important part of, uh, of how we start to do that with teaching, especially in design studios and those projects.
3: I think it's really interesting that you talk about the other influences that you bring into
2: mm-hmm.
3: thinking about architectural practice, right? That um, you're looking to visual art, you're looking to uh, literature, to mm-hmm. music, etc., Because I think I similarly kind of look outward Mm -hmm. in that way. Maybe it's a sense that in these other disciplines, they're in a way like years ahead of where architecture is in terms of, um, you know, kind of engaging complexly with ideas of decolonization, anti-black racism, et cetera. Yeah, Yeah, absolutely. (laughs) Um, So... It often feels as though architecture is like playing catch-up, right? Yeah. That like now this is the moment where these things are kind of exploding um, yeah. and you know, being explored in a much more intense, deep, authentic way. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. And the scholarship is sort of exploding at this moment, which, which feels really exciting. And I, I would imagine it's a really exciting time to be a student, yeah,
2: too. Yeah, absolutely, absolutely.
5: that because you say like there's so much ambiguity in like how students approach architecture because they come into studio not fully knowing that what they want to do that's I think the reason like why architecture is taking such a long time to catch up is because it has always remained ambiguous in where it stands and in calling for the discourse to have some sort of specificity to how it kind of organizes itself to like we get a master's of architecture but like what does like there's like there's so many routes that can take mm-hmm. and so like if if there is like specificity to the field like would you say that there needs to be like more like people can like um, specialize in like a certain aspect of a studio like or take certain courses and then get a specific degree to that and work mm-hmm. towards that mm-hmm. like would, if that was possible now or if it is made possible in the future like would you do that or would you if there are different routes you would take to get towards that
2: It's a great, great question. Um, I wonder, I wonder if it requires in a way, you know, in order to try to, uh, to reflect on your question a bit, I wonder if it entails a kind of bigger conversation and a bigger network with professional bodies and professional associations with accreditation institutions with deans and with university presidents in sort of expectations around uh, the links between the academy and practice. I did architecture in part because I love to draw. And in part, I chose the school that I went to because it emphasized kind of openness. So there was never an expectation that I would be an architect when I graduated from this program. And it was never part of the, of the mandate that the school sort of had when I was in first year. It's like, you know, sure, you could go on to design buildings, but our school has always sort of historically been a place where students have done really different things after they graduate. Film design, you know, set and production design, fashion, interiors, graphic design. Now those are, you know, disciplines unto themselves as well. And so I don't think that architecture can lay claim to, to kind of being able to do everything. But um what I loved about my education was that it really expanded what I thought of as the designed environment. And I think maybe that's why with the studio work, um, you know, reaching outward into, into literature and art and other creative practice uh, and other design fields was just so important, has been so important, I think, and why maybe um, I keep coming back to that as a way to crack open the studio or the architectural project. I, I don't know when the last time was that my studio resulted in a building <laughs> i uh, i don't think I don't think I had you know many buildings actually i don't think I've had any buildings come out of my studios in the last few years they've been kind of speculative you know futures based projects graphic novels a landscape you know you know kind of landscape intervention policy reflections i I imagine you know that it might irritate you know colleagues but yeah, I think that the idea like how do you balance specificity and ambiguity how do you balance openness uh, because there is kind of You know, there are disciplinary requirements, there are professional requirements right now anyway to what we think of as architectural education that lead to certification and licensure and so on. Your question prompts the importance of a bigger conversation about what we value as accreditation criteria. About what we value as essential learning for architects in in schools, as what we put as student performance criteria when we get you know the you know the syllabi and what we put as student evaluation criteria when accreditation teams come to kind of tell us whether or not we have certification as accredited schools of architecture, I think that that's a a really important question to start to ask, especially if we want to look carefully and generously at the kinds of schools that we have and what we teach through those schools as a result. So that doesn't answer your question at all. It maybe just expands it a bit. But I think that the idea of that curiosity is so important. Rob Holmes, who's a landscape architect, he had a a recent article in Places magazine where he talked about the problem with solutions, you know, that he's not opposed to solutions, he's opposed to solutionism as a kind of worldview and framework. And I think that if we can sort of encourage studios to be less solutionism oriented, less solutionist oriented, and more about actually as two other landscape architects, one of whom is at the University of Minnesota, Karen Lutsky and Sean Burkholder say, curious methods, right? Like how do you probe and not just prove? I think that I actually kind of like the ambiguity because it's allowed me at least to kind of, you know, find a bit of a home in this, in this kind of weird flux of specialization.
3: Yeah, I think you're talking to two people who sort of thrive on <laughs> on the um, the not knowing, the, yeah. the kind of you know element of risk, of chance, of yeah. you know that that it's more about like asking a series of questions yeah. than arriving at any particular yeah. answers. And I think that also speaks to like what is the output of the studio course, yeah, right? Exactly. Like exactly, yeah. And isn't even like responsible or reasonable to, like, design a building in 13 weeks. Um, (laughs) (laughs) uh, You know, you you took the words out of my mouth. I had written down here that embedded in your question, Magna, is a kind of broader consideration of what do we value as... Uh, both a discipline and a profession, right? Mm-hmm. And that the the MRC program in particular, you know, straddles <laughs> those two spheres, right? Mm-hmm. Of like being about this kind of intellectual inquiry, but also trying to prepare students to enter the profession. And so yeah. do we change the criteria of what we value to match an expanded notion of what that profession can actually become yeah. if, it, if it remains a kind of accredited, directed program in that way? Uh, and I, th- I think these are the questions that people are are really, you know, tackling right now. Mm-hmm. And uh, especially because it has vast implications for the types of students that we draw into yeah. our right. programs, and honestly, the, the kind of future and relevance of our discipline. Absolutely. <laughs> In a broader uh, sort of sphere of ideas. I think I take the kind of tact that school certainly just shouldn't be about can I mold myself in the vein of professionalism as it's currently defined?
2: And I totally think what that starts to do is like, it starts to unsettle some long settled notions of what we think of as, uh, like as As architecture, as architecture, exactly, absolutely. And so how, I mean, I think that both Jennifer and I, if I can, you know, say this Jennifer on our behalf, like the idea of a thing that unsettles, uh, you mm-hmm. know, architecture should unsettle, like your educations, sh- you know, should unsettle. Your drawings and models and buildings and provocations should absolutely unsettle, I think, because, w- you know, when things come to rest sometimes, um, like you should shake it up. So there's more, you know, there's more particles in the, you know, in the sediment, you know, there's mm-hmm. more sediment in the water so that things are a bit cloudy and, uh, and hazy and indistinct, because I think you have to learn, we have to learn how to negotiate that in really, really meaningful and profound ways. And so what do we value? What do we value as institutions of, uh, of learning? What do we value as yeah. schools of architecture? What do we value in studio? It changes even quite profoundly what we think of, I think, you know, this is just my personal point of view, but it changes even our assessments. It should change our assessments of what we think of as good projects of, mm. uh, you know, mm-hmm. in studios, about what we think of as, in quotation marks, beautiful projects. Or good drawings. I think all of that actually then is put back on the table as um, as a point of entry into much more meaningful conversations about value and, as you all said, about generosity and care.
5: Also, just sorry, just to add to that, I think there's so much reliance on like the aesthetic. Then, when mm-hmm. you like call for a change of representation. Sure. And a change in ideas, and like that calls for a new sort of representation and I mm-hmm. don't think that represent if you think the same like if the representation has figured itself out yet, because mm-hmm. there's so much like what we do appreciate and like what we do understand that has carried forward throughout the discourse, but also so much has changed, like even mm-hmm. like with the courses that are being introduced, like the ways of representing ideas have changed dramatically mm-hmm. and I think mm-hmm. like a change in aesthetics is like very diff and varies between studios. But there's always, like, something that still remains. And mm-hmm. so it's never going to be, like, transformed. It's just kind of, like, transfigured in moments.
2: Yeah. Yeah. Perennial. I think a perennial challenge. Absolutely. <laughs> Absolutely.
3: Yeah. Mm-hmm. I think architects, we, like, I think we want things to, like, resolve. Right? Yeah. Like, we. Want, <laughs> it's very, It's it's hard to be in that place of... Like non-coherence, right? Yeah. Like where yeah. things don't fully form. But I think we need to we need to really dwell in that as a mm-hmm. way of yeah, like not thinking about our work as just about optimization or solving mm-hmm. problems or mm-hmm. that. And and so thus our kind of you know representational tools also have to speak to that. The mm-hmm. way we organize material has to yeah. speak to that. The way yeah. we yeah. Um, yeah think about what a kind of architectural output is has to speak to that. In the course I'm teaching right now, I'm trying to encourage my students to make films and take walks and, you know, think about knowledge in a different way and the way it's produced in a different way. And that there might be things that are kind of, uh, inarticulable and felt. And so yeah. how do you make a drawing about sweat or like yeah. how do you yeah. make a drawing about exertion? Yeah. How do you make a draw? Like how, you know, what are the kind of representational tools that would you would use to talk about experience in a different way? Yeah, absolutely. We'll see if it works. <laughs> How they feel about it. <laughs> but it's, it, it's interesting because I think they're actually really embracing it and I so appreciate their huh. willingness to kind of step into the risk because uh-huh. it, it goes against, like, everything that they've been exposed to up until yeah. this point of, like... Now I must have this like very polished presentation that is, right. you know, I'm speaking as though I am so incredibly expert. And it's like, no, there's actually like a lot of slipperiness in there. Yeah. Absolutely. You know, like even when we try and project the kind of expert view, it's like that's that's still a subjective yeah. lens that we're operating through. So, so let's so, be aware. So
2: Jennifer, of that. Jennifer, um, I mean, is the studio um a grad or undergrad? Like what are you teaching right now? So,
3: uh, Gosh, I'm teaching too many things at one, <laughs> at one time is the problem. No, I'm teaching at two different institutions. So I'm teaching at the University of Minnesota uh, a seminar that is tied to our lecture series, which has been fantastic. It's where amazing. We're, you know, every yeah, it's time good, that someone comes series. and lectures, we have um, you know, a kind of expanded conversation with the students in the seminar. Uh, I'm also teaching an undergraduate studio that's sort of, you know, it's traditionally been the like program studio, but we're... Mm talking about it through the lens of kind of body action and built environment. That mm-hmm. um, So thinking about, you know, program more as a noun, than a, or more as a verb than a noun. Um, yeah. And then the third class that I was referring to is a, an advanced option studio I'm teaching remotely at the GSD. Awesome. So that's all graduate students. And mm-hmm. um, that studio is called Movements, and it's really looking at walking or forms of ambulatory movement as a Mm. site of embodied knowledge. And so thinking about, um, you know, our occupation of public space and the kind of, you know, uh, the way bodies take up the surround or kind of, you know, extend themselves out into the environment. And how do we think about that as a kind of method of resistance, whether it's thinking about protest Mm. or thinking Mm -hmm. about, Different subjectivities occupying spaces yeah, yeah. that maybe aren't deemed where they are they are meant to be allowed, right? yeah. um, and how do we kind of extract something from these kind of strategies of resistance of thinking about kind of counterflows to sort of yeah. hegemonic notion of space, and then using that as a kind of maybe a metaphoric entry into thinking mm-hmm. about architecture and representation mm-hmm. and things like that. So it's it's been very kind of like. <laughs> skittering and free-flowing and and honestly we've looked a lot to kind of contemporary artistic practices to yeah. kind of like ground ourselves in sort of specific instances mm-hmm. um but now the students are really thinking about like okay how do they extract things from those sort of artistic precedents as a kind of yeah. you know impetus for their own reflections not only on their own subjectivity and kind of like place <laughs> and, yeah but but also thinking about it in the context of architecture as a discipline, right? Yeah. Like like challenging our tools. I mean, even you think about perspective drawing, like mm-hmm. something that we're all kind of indoctrinated in, <laughs> knowing how to do uh, and the lineage of that, um, that it kind of privileges a notion of an idealized man. Um, yeah. yep. And so we need to have new forms. We have to have other
2: ways of actually thinking about representation. Yeah, absolutely. That sounds, that sounds super dope. Uh, I would I would love to, I'd love to see the work. Okay, I'm also, I'll
3: invite you to the... <laughs> yeah, no,
2: no, no, no. Um, you know, we're, uh, we're trying to do similar things at Carleton, I think, with, you know, the winter term. We've got a faculty from Dark Matter University that are going to be teaching a couple of our studios. Really excited to have Curry Hackett Angelisa, and Jalisa uh, and Killian Riano and Jen Lowe on board. You know, they've proposed wonderful studios about questioning authorship. In terms of like the co-production of knowledge, focusing on a site in Cleveland, I think Curry and Jalisa are thinking about sort of choreographies of jazz and dance and so on as the kind of you know point of entry into their work. And then actually Tandy Lowenson from RCA just sent the abstract for her studio, and it looks amazing. It's called Black Flight. Actually, hmm. and she's like super invested in thinking about ways to get up in order to get down. Like she referenced a tribe called Quest and their kind of you know like musical you know opera as the kind of point of departure for thinking about black imaginaries in uh, in space and outer space. She referenced Toronto Carabana Festival, talking about feathers and uh, and flight. The reason I was curious is because I just think that so many of the of the studio projects are investigating, you know, these things, these questions in such unconventional ways, mm-hmm. uh, in wonderfully unconventional ways. And actually to go back to Megna's, you know, point in kind of ambiguous ways also, which I really love too. So that's great.
3: I am sorry that I may need to go a, l- oh, <laughs> a little no. bit earlier than oh, no. <laughs> 10. that's totally fine but is there any kind of last thing that I can reflect on maybe to yeah. just sort of close things out uh, from my perspective
4: the, the conversation kind of moved away from it I thought I think it was sort of building on uh, just like a few words that were mentioned about like unsettling or Mm -hmm. um, sort of like unravelling, like what we think architecture is and dismantling that. I thought like from that point, it kind of harks back to both of you talking about like this liberation or this like emancipatory element of architecture. But I think after listening to like another conversation with uh, Leslie Loco and and others, like um, there was this talk about when this happens, like, do we need markers for how we kind of mm-hmm. um, manage these things? Because I think it's really, really amazing. Like, I'm I'm totally for it there. It's that liberation and that nuance mm-hmm. that everyone has. But, like, is it then that we design, like, the markers for those things mm-hmm. to then maybe explore things like sweat or, mm-hmm. like, music and things like that? Like, I think they're totally incredible. But how do we create those markers or do we let it kind of continuously, like, free flow? Um, mm-hmm. Yeah, that was the, the thought. Mm-hmm.
3: Yeah, when you say, do we make markers, is that like like that there's a line in the sand of like a kind of codification of it in some way?
4: In some ways, but that's I, like I wanted to resist using words like having like a boundary or like a kind of, I guess, in quote unquote, it's like a set of deliverables sort of thing. Like what are the mechanisms to, I don't know, solidify it? I'm, I'm not too sure, but I think that's what was like playing on my mind with that.
3: Mm. I, yeah, I mean, I think... It's interesting what you're saying, right? And, and then it's honestly, it gets down to some of the struggles I have now, and like one foot in this academic world and one yes. foot in this sort of practice world. Is that for me, I just want to make things, you know? I don't want to have to like critique and reflect on yeah. <laughs> like all those other things. I think, in some ways, the answer to your question is like in the doing, mm-hmm. um, but then we. You know, we need those ones who can kind of reflect on those practices, make connections, start to kind of not necessarily bound the production of knowledge, but start to establish, you know, kind of its hazy outlines in some way. And you know, I recognize that now being on the tenure track, I'm asked to like, do those things about my own work and situate my <laughs> own practice. But I feel like for me in particular, the tools that I feel most adept with are like actually making things out in space. And so yeah. it's yeah. like through the sort of physical we'll expression sure, uh, of the work that I get closer to those sorts of, at least potential answers to those kinds of questions. Oh. Mm -hmm. and I humbly apologize I need to get off right this second (laughs) (laughs) thank you you so much Jennifer it's good to see you Jennifer
2: say hi to Tom
3: I will he's right next to me thank you so much we appreciate it thank you
2: so much bye Jennifer bye happy i'm happy to stay on uh, i'm not i'm not as engaging or as fun as jennifer but if you if you want to ask any other questions uh, i'm happy to kind of follow up at all there haven't been any knocks at the door no cats scratching no children crying so i think we're good we're good
0: something i've been thinking about a lot sure. recently there's been a lot of talk about resistance and refusals as active mm-hmm. self-care and mm-hmm. caregiving
3: mm-hmm.
0: and i'm just wondering how you practice that every day because um
2: yeah yeah that's yeah. uh, <laughs> huge huge issue of late you know i uh, i joked recently that i was going to to host a webinar on on how to sign up for webinars and then not go to them uh, <laughs> which is precisely what i've been doing i think for you know for a couple of weeks now because There's so much amazing stuff, you know, that has just seemed to, to kind of erupt and just be available in the last few months, you know, being able to kind of listen in on conversations that ordinarily would have been much more closed, much more interior, much less accessible. And that's, of course, you know, you know, kind of acknowledging the incredible privilege of having kind of reasonable internet and, uh, and a safe place to be able to kind of access those things. And so, I feel really guilty about it, actually, you know, like to be totally honest, I feel really guilty about, you know, wanting to kind of engage in learning and learning and learning. But then at the end of the day of teaching, you know, nine hours on Zoom, just being so exhausted that, you know, all I really want to do is like watch The Simpsons or, or, you know, Bachelorette or whatever. (laughs) Um, Like, it's really just um, part of it, I think, uh, is resisting the nature of how much, that structure of being productive, of, in quotation marks, in scare quotes, being productive has become embedded in my own sort of actually, you know, genetic code since becoming a teacher. If you're, if you're not being, in quotation marks, productive in particular ways, writing, publishing, you know, kind of reading, you feel in a way, or I feel that I'm, you know, somehow uh, lesser than and I think part of the resistance is realizing that you don't owe the academy that, you don't owe the institution that, you owe yourself, actually, time to rest, time to heal, time to be with friends, with colleagues, with pets, with loved ones, with words and music and you know environments that are nurturing for you. I've actually found that I've been really productive during a global pandemic, but it's been because I've, I've been doing things that I've just genuinely enjoyed doing. Uh, that it hasn't necessarily been the work that I've been, you know, required to do or asked to do, because the work hasn't lessened. You know, even though we're in a global pandemic, it hasn't actually lessened at all. It hasn't actually changed. In fact, in many ways, it seems to have expanded. And so I think when the pandemic struck in March and our studio went online, I was crushed. I was teaching the studio that I had been planning for actually, you know, like for years. Uh, It was a studio on. on using Persian and Ottoman miniature painting as a method for kind of talking about, you know, urban space projects. And so we traveled to Istanbul. We spent some time there with students. We met with amazing artists and activists uh, and so on. And students got all this incredible material. And the idea was to generate a miniaturist's folio of like five drawings five miniature drawings that tell the story of an urban transformation project in Istanbul. And also then to build the folio case that these miniatures would actually sit in and, uh, you know, and live in. And then with like four weeks to go, everything shut down. And I realized that students couldn't get to the shop. They wouldn't be able to get to the, you know, the, you know, the fab lab. And uh, and I was absolutely crushed because I'd wanted to teach the studio for years and years and years and years and years. And then, I, you know, thought about it over the weekend and and I sent my students a note saying, I want them to, for the remainder of the term, I wanted them to develop an accountability of love for their project. So I, you know, sort of eliminated all of the the established constraints uh, and deliverables and expected outcomes. And I said, all right, figure out what you love about this work, figure out what you love about the project, about an approach, about a way of drawing, a way of writing, a way of thinking, a way of making. And let's, let's actually make the rest of the term about an accountability of love so that you have the motivation, the, you know, the personal motivation to continue the work You're doing something that you enjoy in an environment that's very difficult, you know, that's very uncertain. It gives you kind of a raison d'être to, you know, kind of wake up in the morning and to, you know, and to sit at your desk or to sit at your computer. And I think, uh, you know, I think, Audrey, like an accountability of love is what I would say in response to your question about how to resist, uh, because it, it can be absolutely overwhelming absolutely overwhelming and so yeah for me it's been writing and it's been drawing actually but not academic writing and not academic drawing that has sort of become a personal project I think since the summer and I think whatever you can do in order to develop that and and I'm sure you have you know good teachers and good faculty and good colleagues who will understand that that's like really important part of of the work that you produce you know Mitchell Squire has been talking about this uh, Leslie Loco has been talking about this. Actually, I think Leslie referenced a post by Mitchell about the notion of love, about how you sort of love yourself as a way to kind of be engaged in the world in a, in a way that doesn't crush you under the weight of responsibility or stress or work or deliverables. That's what I would say. I think an accountability of love is, um, is a way to kind of resist that. I what
5: really, else? really
2: Any?
0: appreciate that and love that. <laughs>
1: When we were sort of setting up this conversation, it sort of came up the idea of like burn it all down versus like <laughs> going forward. And I guess I'm just curious about that. I know you had posted um, Arundati Roy's The Pandemic is a Portal. Is a portal. And that, yeah. that was a really great piece of writing and made me think a lot. So I just wonder yeah, like how you're feeling these days of about that and like if there's anything worth taking with us or
2: like... Yeah, yeah, yeah absolutely. Like what do we carry through the portal with us? What do we carry through the door with us? I feel a lot lighter now that the election's over, to be quite honest. It hasn't really registered to me just how much weight of thinking about that has been carried, I think, by many people, especially as a, as a faculty member of color, you know, kind of in a way being directly impacted by, you know, some of the things that happened politically south of the border. And certainly here also, you know, not to say that that doesn't exist here. It absolutely does. But when we chatted, um, I you know, was talking about the the murder of George Floyd in Minneapolis. And, you know, as I mentioned, I, you know, spent 12 years in Minneapolis and uh, and loved the city a lot. I just like, it's, uh, it's so close to my heart. I can't, you know, I can't even explain it. And so really affected by that. And then, you know, before that, Fernando Castile and others. Uh, and then, of course, you know, here in Canada as well, Regis Korchinski-Paquet, you know, the murder of those um, of those Muslim worshippers in the Quebec City mosque. But George Floyd's, you know, murder in particular was just really kind of, was very difficult. And I, for a long time, I was in a kind of burn it all down phase. Like, we need to like start fresh with our institutions. We need to start fresh with schools. We need to start fresh so that we don't have to reform, <laughs> you know, so that like reform isn't just like a requisite, you know, so that fighting isn't always a requisite and labor isn't always like a requisite. And so to be honest, I'm still kind of in that mindset a little bit, profound frustrations with the incredible slowness of some of the things that really should be moving much more quickly. But I think that's been balanced out a little bit with time in some way. I think being able to say no to things, being able to kind of prioritize things that are meaningful for me has been one of the most significant methods of coping, actually, in a really stressful environment and really stressful time. I'm incredibly fortunate in that my parents are close by and that I can walk to see them and that my children can see their grandparents and so on. And so, yeah, so Hannah, to try to answer your question, I still think that we should invest in new institutions that don't require reform. In addition to trying to do the best work that we can do, with an accountability of love in the places that we're at. I don't know how you all feel about, you know, how things are going at Yale in terms of all of these questions and conversations and so on, especially from students. I'm a little bit more optimistic about how some schools are handling these kinds of questions and how they're being encouraged to, directed to, in large part by students, actually, which is very affirming as a faculty member, and also a little disappointing that it seems to be, in many cases, on the backs of students to kind of make calls for change, to kind of, you know, like to push for, uh, you know, for transformation. Because I think that there's a dialogue that there is an amazing co-production of transformation that can happen in the same way that there's co-production of knowledge. There's the co-production of transformation when you have multi-generational engagement with these kinds of questions. So, engaged teachers, engaged academics, engaged practitioners, and engaged students students have a lot of energy and a lot of anger, and that's important. And it's good, but it's also not everything that you need that kind of multi-generational engagement with it. You need experience and you need kind of wisdom, you know, also to help you negotiate some of these challenges and difficulties. And so I joked with Leslie Loco, actually, uh, I wanted to start a new school of architecture. Like I just wanted to start an entirely new school of architecture, one that was completely unfettered by accreditation requirements and so on. And this was Uh, before she had resigned. I think it was following a couple of ACSA webinars and so on. You know, we had a conversation about it. And then not shortly after, Dark Matter University, you know, sort of emerged as this kind of thing. And that's something that I'm so grateful to Jennifer Newsom and Justin Garrett Moore and Killian Riano and all the faculty that are kind of, you know, Joyce Wong and others that are kind of shepherding that, because I think that's a huge, huge, huge step forward. And then, of course, Dominic, as you and I were talking about earlier, you know, Leslie's possible new school in Accra, I think as something that is uh is new, so I feel more optimistic I think you know than I was in July, but there's still a fair amount of unsettling to do, I think Hannah I don't know if that answers the question or not, but
1: yeah, that's super great. Thank you
2: sure, sure. We retooled a bunch of our classes this summer. Our professional practice class is uh, being co-taught by Mario Gooden, Nicole Nomsomoyo, Patrick R. Stewart. He's uh, an indigenous architect in Vancouver. They're the ones teaching the professional practice class, a total reframing through the lens of sort of spatial and racial justice. Uh, We retooled our our intro to architecture class to be co-taught by McKenna Makeka, who's visiting from Cape Town. I think we only mentioned Corbusier once, for about four <laughs> minutes for about four <laughs> minutes but then everything else has been about collective space they know more about francis kere now the frame of reference for the course has been totally re to africa i mean i'm from johannesburg mokena's from cape town and so every single lecture has been sort of africa-centric and this is the intro you know this is the intro to architecture class so they'll You know, I'll probably get some comments from colleagues when they go into second year saying they don't know Louis Kahn, you know, they don't know Carlos Scarpa. They, you know, they don't know, uh, you know, uh, you know, God forbid, Bjork Ingalls, uh, you know, um, (laughs) (laughs) Uh, but they'll know Marina Tabassum, they'll know Miriam Kamara, they'll know David Ajay. They'll know, you know Francis Carey, they'll know Mokena, they'll know scholars and architects and designers from the global south instead uh, as a frame of reference. And so I think that there's a lot of room in the discipline to do that. And I think that's what's exciting to me. So I think that there's good things. I think that there is goodness out there. There's care out there. There's generosity out there and compassion out there. And students are ready for it. And we need to make sure that our faculty are too and that our, sc- and, and that our schools are too as a result. <laughs> okay, you guys lovely thank lovely so to much. talk to you thank you so much thank My you Thanks. thank you Bye very much Bye,